bit better? Okay. Um, today we'll embark upon a teaching that's very difficult to talk about. I'm preaching to myself. I think we're preaching to everyone today. It is very difficult because, you know, if you, we all of us sit here today, um, you know, our hearts are hardened to some degree, and life is just difficult, and um, uh, you won't get much out of it. We pray, let's pray that God will open our hearts today, that we'll be less hardened, less cynical, that the Holy Spirit would do His work, and that... Um, because it's an important thing for us to talk about. So let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, we give you praise for this day. We give you thanks. Lord, your word is truly sharper than a double-edged sword. We pray that you will do its work. It will be of this quenching of our soul this morning. We pray that your spirit would allow us to glean into your word and what the great Apostle Paul had to say about contentment. We live our lives mostly in a discontented state. And as a Christian, may we be like Paul, that we would learn to be content in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. So you won't get distracted. I'll get this out of the way. I fractured my finger this this week. And... um, you know, the finger is, to talk about this contentment. You know, this is a very important finger. You keep, I realized like, it's one out of nine, right? But I didn't realize until I went to work next day, this is your click finger on your mouth. <laughs> so it just threw everything off. So I had to all order a trackball. So I couldn't get my, my fingers are pretty thick, so I couldn't get around <laughs> and work it right. And, and I had to prepare a sermon and typing under these things is... You know, a lot of typos, a lot of reds going up and correcting myself and took about at least 20% longer than I would normally do on wasted time. But, you know, as I was preparing to teach on contentment, I tried to shepherd my own heart this way. <laughs> you know, in 1980, there was a movie called Gods Must Be Crazy. How many of you saw that movie? You have to be a little bit older. Gods Must Be Crazy. All right, good. More than I thought. This is really like weird movie, kind of off-the-wall movie. I don't know. I can't even think of it. It being in blockbusters. But it's just that the movie is, there's an airplane flying by, I think somewhere in Africa. Right? There's a tribe below. This pilot, it's a small plane, I guess. Pilot is drinking Coke and he throws the bottle out the window. This tribe was ex- existing in a very, you know, primitive state. But people were happy. People were generally very content. But this Coke bottle lands in the middle of the tribe. They bring it back and they wonder what it is. They wonder what it was and they uh, found the use for it. So they found it to use it for drinking water. They put water in it. They drink it. They mash vegetables and potatoes with it. They roll dough with it. They never had anything before. And they clean animal skin. And after a short while, there's one bottle in the whole tribe. What do you do? Now, who gets this luxury of a Coke bottle? Think of that. Luxury of a Coke bottle. Now what happens? You throw this luxury item in the middle of the, this tribe. What do you find? Very discontented people. They all want to have this Coke bottle. Right? 
This Coke bottle ruins this tribe. And the wise leader of the tribe says, I'm taking this Coke bottle. It's ruining us. People are bickering and fighting. All kinds of things happen. So he takes the Coke bottle, takes it to the ends of the earth. Some, he stands on the cliff and he gets rid of it. And little things like that, little luxury item like a Coke bottle can lead us to discontentment. You know that also since 1945, since the end of World War II, depression in the westernized country, Western civilization has not doubled or tripled, it went up tenfold, depression. Since 1945, in these Western civilizations, it's more affluent than it's ever been. People are more rich. People have more things, more luxuries, more comforts. Yet, depression is up tenfold. So in a sense, more primitive cultures, it's easier to be content. Brothers and sisters, this contentment is an endless cycle that gets us nothing but more misery. Nothing but more misery. So let's discuss how to deal with Coke bottles in our lives. What the great Apostle Paul has to say about the Coke bottles in our lives. You know, what Paul is saying is contentment has to be a part of our DNA. You know, we live our lives, and physically we need to manage ourselves. Physically, we have to do certain things to be healthy. But spiritually, contentment has to be a key makeup of a Christian. Key makeup. This content, it, it has effects on everything and a lot of things, and it has effects that leads to other sins as well. Think about it. How are you going to share the gospel truth to other non-believers with a discontented heart? Is that what God wants? You know, Paul lived a difficult Christian life, right? He lived a difficult Christian life. You want to promote Christendom or Christianity, don't depict Paul's life. Because <laughs> you will not get, you will not sell very much. This is very difficult. But that's reality, correct? That's reality. He was, he suffered, beaten physically, difficult circumstances. You know, after meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus, he had nothing but difficulty physically suffering until the end. But he says until the end, when he wrote this text, imprisoned, chained, you know, away from much, almost all fellowship, he says, I learned to be content. How amazing is that? Okay? We are all a little bit, should be a little bit, little bit at least more content than Paul in this current state where he writes this. You know, as I said before, Christianity is not a mindless religion. God gave us minds to think and to process things. And I love this word. Paul says he learned to be content. This is a rare thing that Christians, especially particularly today, we are probably more challenged because we live in such an affluent area to gain this contentment. Remember, contentment exists only in our minds, human minds. It has nothing to do with our circumstances, what we have. 
or at least it should not. By the grace of God, Paul realized this and understood this mystery, how to have contentment in his heart. Contentment is an elusive thing, is it not? Is not the natural propensity of man. Because contentment comes into question when things like expectations get involved, possessions get involved, comforts get involved, desiring to live an easy life. You know, discontentment blinds us to where we don't see what we have, what we do have. And we don't see others around us who don't have what we have. Contentment is becoming selfless, as one pastor wrote, selflessly satisfied in the Lord. In the strictest sense, contentment can be only gained through the understanding of the attributes of God, at the dynamics of our salvation, and the path that we are headed. It's a contentment, it's a rich biblical word. And Paul says to Timothy in first Timothy six, Godliness with contentment is a great gain. And later on, a few verses later he says, Have food and clothing, let us be content. Hebrews 13.5 Be content with whatever you have. For He said, I will never leave or forsake you. The Bible clearly identifies this as an important virtue. You know, due to our sinful flesh, we tend to be very difficult and discontent. Um, contentment is very difficult to gain and we, we are very discontented people. And I'll touch more later on. Affluence, okay, affluence will make it that much more difficult. Possessions will that make it that much more difficult. How many of you fall under the age group of about 28 to 40? 28 to 40. 28 to 40. Good 60, 70% of this crowd. Most of you brothers who are working in, in, uh, in the secular world, your income, the studies have shown, your income will about double between those periods of time. In about 10 to 12 years, your income will double. Okay? Now we're fighting as Christians, desiring to be content. But it's, the world is pulling you, your income is pulling you the other way. How are you going to battle that? How are you going to battle that? How are we going to battle that? You know, it is true that we must be one of the most discontented, discontented people in the world. If there's other Christians around the world looking at us, they must think we're the most discontented people in the world because we just by the virtue of where we're living. But we are called to be satisfied. We are called to say, I have enough. Paul did. And Paul was a satisfied man. He learned contentment. So let's turn to our text this morning, Philippians 4. I'm going to cover um, verses 10 through 14, but I'll read a little bit longer just to give you greater context. 
Philippians 4.10 But I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that at last we have revived were concerned for me. Indeed, were concerned for me before, but we lacked op- you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak of what you want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know that I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having the abundance and suffering needs. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, we have done well to share with me in my afflictions. Ourselves also know, Philippians, that first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church has shared with me in the matter of giving, receiving, but you alone. For even Thessalonica, we sent, you sent gifts more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift for myself, but I seek for profit which to increase to your account. You know, Paul knew this contentment. Again, he was writing this letter as a prisoner, incarcerated in Rome, isolation, he lost all freedom as a minister. You know, one thing probably Paul loved to do more than anything else, to preach the gospel, minister the word of God. He couldn't do that any longer. You know, his, in a way, his manly, manhood was taken away. Of the core of his being was taken away. Probably the most, maybe, maybe one of the saddest parts of his life at this point, the low point, but in verse 11 he says, I learn to be content. And that's a rich man, right? That's a rich man who could stand there and say, I am content. That's the richest man in the world. Paul learned. He was rich because he learned his relationship. He understood the relationship between him and the world. Him and possessions where he stood in this world, that he knew that he was a soldier or a stranger, a pilgrim, a traveler who is here temporarily. You know, that's, that's contentment, right? That's understanding a contentment. It's that, it's learning that things of this world, understanding and putting it into perspective, will not satisfy. This is an old adage, but one has to live with the internal... Eternal mindset in order for someone to say this and understand and grasp it. And that's one of the reasons why we struggle with so much. Struggle with this so much is that because we don't really understand. We talk about it. We say it. It's a catchphrase. It's a, something that, you know, we throw out as Christians a lot, but we truly don't know what that means. I think Paul understood that. Paul understood the eternal mindset. Because again, Paul lived the most difficult life. More than I would venture to guess, all of us here. Yet he was able to say that. How? He learned to have an eternal mindset. So let's go through Paul's thesis. But before that, let's go through the symptoms of discontentment. And these are broad, you know, obviously there could be Many more, but just broad things I want to cover. You know, one thing as we start off, Jeremiah Burroughs said, Christian contentment is a duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. Let's start there. It's duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. Number one symptom of discontentment. 
you could take a wild guess. I bet it would be easy for you to guess. Number one, covetousness. Covetousness is desiring something much more than God. Covetousness is a desire to have what others belong, like what belongs to others. Generosity is giving to others. Covetousness is in the opposite end. When contentment in God decreases, covetousness will increase. You know, many crimes in the modern society today stems from this covetousness or this contentment. Because it's characteristic of a material person who envies, invariably wants what others have that he doesn't have, seeking to change his circumstances by material possession. That's a fruitless thing. To change one's state of heart, state of mind, by having things and getting what others have. You know, we have a generation of children who's growing up entertained by things from about 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, despite another thing after another thing, one activity after another. Will that satisfy? We must flee from covetousness. Number two, greed or materialism. Okay. This is a long one, right? You could take talk all day about this, you know. Baseball is no longer the national pastime. Materialism or greed is. You know, in the 80s, this really kicked out after the hippies, and I don't know what the 70s belonged to, but um, bad clothes or something. But in the 80s, there was this group called yuppies. Okay, yuppies. And, you know, I was a, I grew up in the 80s, and so I wanted to be one. I wanted to be, they called the dink. You know what dink is? How many of you know what dink is? Okay, James knows. Few people. Few people. About seven people. <laughs> dink. <laughs> dink is, it's, it, it stands for double income, no kids. Okay? It's making it in this world. Double income, no kids. You're married, forget having kids, earn much as you can, you're living the good life. That's a, that's a model of a yuppie in the 80s. All right? I wanted to be one way back then. <laughs> Derek, Nolan, and Lindsay came and kind of put a damper on that plan. <laughs> I praise God for that. Because it helps me to be content. And Randy Alcorn says, causes disease affluenza. Right? Affluenza. I love that word. Affluenza is a strange malady that affects the well-to-do. They have everything that money can buy, but they show symptoms of someone who's, uh, who's living in poverty, such as depression, anxiety, despair. Their lives encompass alcohol, drugs, and sometimes suicide. That's what Spurgeon said this. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, gold is a good thing when you put it to use, but it's a bad thing in the heart. Right? You know, I read Spurgeon's sermon on contentment, you know, he spoke to generally a blue-collar people who work with their hands. And he told them to be content. It's a little bit easier for me to tell you to be content. Right? You know, again, I have, you know, 
I have very little authority in this area because I struggle with this as much as you do. You know? When we were in China, in the border of North Korea and China, this pastor, this Korean Chinese pastor was, had his church shut down for sharing the gospel. He was talking about materialism. He would help people. And he said, these people become materialistic. I look at him, what are you talking about? You guys don't have anything here. He was talking about materialism was sorely based upon amount of food that they had to eat. You know? For us, that's no problem. In the context, that's what he was talking about. We have so much. You know? We are consumed with consuming. Right? There's a Money Magazine concluded that there's no society, no culture, unlike the American society today, that consumes and pursues money to consume. He said you could even subtract two years for every 40000 you make per year in your annual income. You could subtract two years of your life. For those people who are richer, live shorter, live less. The money has become the obsession among both men and women in this culture. It has also caused you to people to be less faithful in their marriage. This studies have shown, right? Of men earning twenty thousand dollars per year, there's only thirty one percent chance they'll have extramarital affairs. But if they they go over sixty thousand dollars per year, studies have shown seventy percent of men have extramarital affairs. Okay? These are concrete studies that are done. You know, this sin of materialism is very serious. You know, we also are raising a generation of children who are materialistic. They have everything. Now, Randy Alcorn also says, materialism consists of two things that God hates most, idolatry and adultery. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death what is earthly and new, immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desires, covetousness, which are all idolatry. You know, like any other idols we have in our lives, it's loving the creation more than the creator. Money is destructive. Again, remember the contentment is in our minds, not to the extent of our possessions. It's in our minds. Lastly, there's another symptom of complaining, um, of discontentment, is complaining, grumbling. Okay? We live in a very complaining society, right? Customer service departments exist in every company because there are complainers, like you and me, right? You know? How many of us have called Dell and complained about something? Many of us. You know, we, live, we see this every day, you know? Every day, maybe some of you encounter this on the way to church this morning. Traffic jams, slow drivers, slow servers at restaurants, long lines everywhere, right? DMV, INS, when you have to eat leftovers, flight delays, right? Flight delays. They lose your luggage. Delta Airlines. <laughs> I tell you, sorry, Lou Priolo lost his luggage. 
when we're going to South Carolina, my family and I, we got to South Carolina. We're missing one luggage. So the next day they call me and they said, oh, we found your baggage. Said, Where is it? It's in L.A. still. Okay. And she goes, do you, want, do you still want your bag? I go, of course. So they brought it the next day, but like, you know, discontentment, right? And I think another one of reasons the major complaining happens, because I, I attribute this, I, I read an article this week, but I wholeheartedly agree with this, because people are having, again, the ding philosophy, less kids. The people, Americans have, American families have, now American couples have only 1.7 children. Right? We're raising a generation of selfish kids. Right? Discontented generations, product of smaller families. Right. You know, if you're a house, you're living in a house as an only child, let's say, you're going to grade school, you're going to school, and your mom packs your lunch, there's a pretty good chance that sandwich or whatever you're getting is going to be pretty good. Right? It's pretty good. Good stuff, right? You could tell when you go to kids, you know, eating lunch together, who's an only child. But if you're one of five, right? You're one of five, you're barely, you're lucky to get a grilled cheese sandwich with a... You know, half drunken water, you know, <laughs> bottle of water, right? You know, who's going to be more likely to be discontented? Right? I think smaller families have attributed to that, raising selfish kids. And according to Philippians 2, Paul writes earlier, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know, complaining comes from a sinful heart. And Church is no, <laughs> church is no uh, sanctuary for uh, uh, content people. There are many families that are run in this way as well, raising child-centered families. Yeah. Many churches and families subscribe to this self-esteem theory, self-fulfillment. And if you raise a child-centered family, when you're catering to a child, or children even, you raise discontented kids. Raise discontented kids. And the complaining is an expression of dissatisfied heart. Yet, even more so, it is very, very offensive to God. It's an, complaining is an emotional rejection of God's providence and sovereignty. That's the greatest offense. It is an emotional rejection of the circumstances God had providentially chosen for you. Right? Burroughs also writes in, the, in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, it says, contentment arises from grace of God, but murmuring and complaining arises from the corrupt heart of a man. I think, lastly, this contentment affects your prayer life, our prayer lives. And I think maybe, think about this, brothers and sisters, I thought about this in my life. Why do we have such weak prayer lives? Because a lot of complaints in our heart. Complainers, when we are complaining in a complaining mode, it's very hard to pray. Very difficult to pray. I think we could re- reduce or remove complaining in our heart. Our prayer lives will increase, and we'll find more contentment. So let's go to the text. Key mindsets to contain.
contentment. I'm going to give you four this morning from the text. First one, verse, verse 10, says, In God's providence, Paul talks about, says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you lacked opportunity. Says, again, the background of this text, you know, Paul founded his church in Philippians. It's been about 10 years the last gift was sent. It's, it's been 10 years that he received any support from them. And Paul understood that. He lost a lot of contact with them, but he heard from them. But they didn't have this opportunity, the Kairos opportunity. He didn't complain. You know, if you founded the church, you pour out your heart to church, sometimes many of us would have expectations, right? But Paul, Paul understood God's providence, God's hand in this. You know, that's taking Paul's example, brothers and sisters. We need to take the opportunity to trust God in everything according to his plans. It's so for easy for us to become discontent when things don't happen according to our time, to according to our own calendars. And a discontentment comes from also when we want to control everything instead of allowing God's sovereignty to continue to take place. When we fail to understand that, we under, fail to understand God's providence. And the providence is a term that indicates God, that God simply provides. God provides more than what we need. Again, remember, in God's sovereignty, in God's providence, this may be a shock for all of us, for many of you, we are not the center of God's providence. Okay? But this contentment is one who thinks that we are at the center of God's sovereignty and providence. Our expectations of God puts that right in center. You know, we, we become discontent when through our, your elders, right? Or your flock shepherds, when they preach long or teach long or pray long, right? Maybe co-workers or bosses, you know, friends, family, brothers and sisters, husband and wife, a contented person like Paul knows everything happens according to God's time and His sovereignty and understands and waits patiently. Now once we come to the conclusion that God's sovereignty and providence will happen according to God's will, we'll experience some level of contentment. So this area, next area going into this understanding God's providence, I want to touch upon something here real quick. This is a very sensitive subject. I thought about doing it, not about not doing it, but here we go. Okay. Issue of singleness. Okay. Issue of singleness, being content in that. You know, I only get to preach a few times a year, so I gotta get this in. <laughs> I'm compelled. Again, I don't have authority in this area. I have no room to talk, but I have only authority that gives me from the, given from the position I hold. Right? 
Psalm 84, 11 says, Lord bestows upon favor and honor. No good things does he withhold from those who walk righteously. And I read a lot of books on contentment. A lot of them are written to women. I read um, this week, Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye? So a lady who goes to Joshua Harris's church, right? Let me, just for fun. She said, the top thing, top ten things that you should say to a single woman at a wedding. I was read some of you. Some of it, not all of them. Don't say this, brothers, to <laughs> next wedding, to single sisters. It says, or, you're next. Okay. Number two was, maybe you're called to singleness. <laughs> Can you babysit tonight? Or, did you ever consider being a missionary? And saying, what about naming a brother's name? <laughs> All those things. But again, let's take a proper view. That's for, that was just for fun. But it's a serious matter. You know, just understand this proper view of singleness. So, you know, we even see in the Old Testament, Ruth, a woman who had a lot of reason to be bitter, you know, widowed at a young age, difficult life, but God blesses her. God chooses her. You know, Elizabeth Elliot said also, if you, we are, if you are single today, the portions assigned to you today is singleness. It's God's gift. Singleness ought to be not, not ought, singleness ought not be viewed as a problem, nor marriage as a good right. God in His wisdom and love grants either as a gift. Today, Today's business is to trust the living God who precisely measures out day by day each one's portion. The reason why singleness and any other gift that is difficult to see because it's difficult because of self-centeredness. Again, we are at the center of God's sovereignty. We must evaluate each gift according to not how it suits us, but how it suits God, how it serves His purpose, you know, gifts are not like a pair of shoes that we could return when we don't like it. It's given to you. Then we see in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul validates marriage and promotes the gift of singleness at the same time as an advantage. Right. Gordon Fee says about this in 1 Corinthians 7, is that this is a gracious endowment which at times in this letter is also seen the gracious activity of the Holy Spirit in our midst. You know, another, another view of singleness that we should be thankful for is in light of the church. Right? In light of the church. We all have, we have different people. You know, one thing I, I appreciate about Cornerstone or any church, universal church, but at least this one that I'm involved in, is the diversity. We have older folks, younger folks, you know, we have singles, married, married with children, without children, different people, different people, different people serving in different ways with one purpose in mind, to serve the Lord. The purpose that you're single, God has placed you at this church in God's church to be, to have your role in this church. I believe single people will encourage and edify the church as much as anybody else in this church, 
regardless of their age or marital status, we all can edify the body. You know, for those of you who are desiring to be married, brothers and sisters, you know, if I were the enemy, talk about temptation, this is where I would strike. The reason why you, I think perhaps you're struggling with it, this is where the enemy will strike. Because it's the greatest area, perhaps, of your temptation. It's a need. You feel as a need, therefore, the enemy strikes. Right? Even the... The enemy struck Christ in his greatest area, perhaps for its temptation as well. So be careful of the temptation. Trust in God's providence and sovereignty. Right? And singleness and contentment are not mutually exclusive things. Remember what Dell said, right? When he said, he, when he went to missions from here to Czech Republic, he left everything, went there. It felt the same because he took his sinful flesh with him. Same thing. Same concept. The marriage will not bring contentment. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Marriage or anything else in this life, this world has to offer, will not bring contentment. You'll find even more things to be discontented about. Right? Even more. Longing for marriage, once you have it, you'll long for other things and have desire for other things. You know, singleness does not provide lack of contentment any more than marriage provides it. Alright? And lastly, I'll share this with you. Um, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 7 talks about the woman who comes with the jar, alabaster jar, comes to Christ with her best and gives it to her. Right. This perhaps may have been even been been a um, her idol to her, her prized possession perhaps, something that she, even she struggled with. Right. You know, I would ask you, what is your alabaster jar that you could take to Christ? Maybe singleness is it. Maybe it's for some of us, it's different things that we're tempted with, that we struggle with, that we don't find contentment in. What can we go to Christ? Second point, another mindset being key for contentment is mindset of basics, being satisfied with the little, verse 11. Not that I speak of what I want, but I've learned to be contented in whatever circumstances I am. Do you know that I read it in Orange County Business Journal 75% of luxury cars in Orange County, luxury cars meaning cars over $35,000, are all leased. That's going from one car to another car, another car in a very short, relatively short period of time because they don't find satisfaction. They move on to another thing. You know, for, for, I think all of us would agree. We don't find, we don't buy clothes, new clothes. It's not because our clothes are worn out or don't longer fit. But we get them because we are discontented. We're not content with our current wardrobe. It gets old. For some of you, this is not a challenge, but some of us, it's, it's a great challenge. 
Paul was satisfied with little. That this really hits our culture very hard because our culture is based upon such a lot of this uh, virtue. You know, again, it's an inverse relation. More and more we have, we are less content. The need, need is the greatest, next greatest value in the American society. Need. Everything is in need. Right? It's the center of humanism. It puts, again, human being the center of everything. God is not the ultimate. Human beings are. The humanistic premises. Need. Going from one need to another need. Look at the media. Modern media just feeds this. And the commercials exist for a reason. Televisions, television programs need commercials. They need one another. And they provide as a forum, an avenue for us to find our needs. Media dictates to us now what our needs are. They want us to consume as much as we possibly can. Supersizing. Where did that come from? Right? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, man's health is an end product of right living. Contentment is a result of living biblically. You know, Paul was so humble. He says, not, not that I speak of what I want. He was humble in First Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I have the right to live of the gospel, of the gospel I preach. And he had the right to get paid. But he said, look, I'm, going to, I'm not going to take things from you because we cause, I don't want to be, I don't want to charge you for what I, what I do. He didn't want what he did, the gospel, to be clouded by what he earned from them. He was confident in God that he would meet his needs. He still worked with his hands. You know, we also have, again, having a discontented church. For brothers and sisters, in the church, whatever roles you're in, that was taken away from you today. If you long, tomorrow you wake up and you no longer serve it and served in whatever you are serving in today, Will you be content? Will we be content? We need to come to that state. C.S. Lewis said, If we think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, we find this quite intolerable. Think of this place as a training correction, and it's not too bad. We need to be satisfied with little and this goes with, I made up this word. In sanctification, remember, God gave us minds to think. It's not a mind, Christianity is not a mindless religion. We need to have, we need to be, we need to have, go through thinkification. Okay? We need to think rightly. We need to be sanctified in our thinking. And that will prog- help us to progress in our goal toward Contentment and sanctification. Number three, 
mindset of independence in all circumstances. Verse 12. Say, I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstances. In any circumstances, Paul knew. Says, I know. Paul says this twice in this this uh, verse. Contentment is synonymous with not being a victim of circumstances. Again, Paul suffered many difficult times, physically, emotionally, inflicted with much pain. He goes to Jerusalem, you see in the book of Acts. Then he gets arrested, thrown in prison. But in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul also says, in much endurance, in affliction, in hardship, in distress, in beating, in imprisonment, in tumult, in labor, and sleepless nights, in hunger. You know, that Paul was, that was his life. That was his life. He lived with the heavenly vision with an eternal perspective. Understanding every circumstance falls into, under the sovereignty of God. He looked to the eternal rewards rather than uh, awards on this earth. He took the affliction knowing that there's a reward at the end. There's a golden mine. You'll put out. It's like an athlete training. You'll train, suffer physically because there's an arena he wanted to compete in. Number four is mindset of others. Looking out for the well-being of others. Verse 14. It's a ketchup pack. I use this in the in our home. It's the ketchup pack theory, right? You know, the kids go through this. You go to like McDonald's or Burger King or something. You go to drive through and you're at somewhere eating and both have French fries. You have three kids. You have more kids. Or you have these two kids. You have, they both have French fries and one ketchup pack. What do you do, right? I teach. My, I try to teach my kids. You defer to the other. You give up your last ketchup pack. Right? It's kind of silly, but you give even the last precious thing you have at that moment. Right? The more contented people are people who are more concerned with others. Paul could have said, where were you Philippians? I've been suffering here. Paul says, I knew, I knew you you didn't have the opportunity. And contentment belongs to a person who demands less from others in life. Who actually is not only not demanding, but is more concerned with others. Who's providing more for others. Giving. This was his mindset of our Lord. Why did he die on the cross? Yeah, ultimately to the will of God. But to save sinful, fallen mankind. He left heaven to meet our needs. We could see that. And Paul understood that. That with that, with these four points, and I love what Paul says, the overarching mindset, he says in verse 13, this is the context where this sentence is used. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In this context, Paul says this. I think this is one of the greatest sentences in the Bible. It's also probably most misinterpreted, one of the most interpreted, misinterpreted as well. 
you know, when people, are, a lot of the preachers or pastors who preach positive thinking, to get Paul's point across, in my humble opinion, this is not about health and wealth. You know, Paul is suffering here. This is not humanism, Paul's preaching. It's not comfort, Paul's preaching. It's not the little engine that could theology, whereas I think I can, I think I can, and therefore you could have God will help you happen. No. That was not in sight for Paul. And that, nor that was that the goal for Paul, to be, to have comfort. You know, God did not save us to live out the American dream, to keep up with the Joneses and our neighbors. God did not save us so that we would live a good life or pain-free life. It's the other way around. You know, James shares this all the time. God saved us from hell, but not from the cross. One thing we could guarantee, as Paul suffered, we will suffer. But it says, through Christ, I can do all things. Through Christ, we can find contentment. It's the reliance and the ability to focus on Christ to accomplish God's purpose, not our purpose. It's related to John 15, 5. It says, He abides in me and I in Him. For without me, you can't do nothing. It's absolutely correct. Who enabled Paul to be content in hunger, in suffering? Because he abided in Christ. The adequacy and sufficiency not didn't come through Paul's status, came through Christ. That's the secret of contentment, right? It's relationship. Relationship with the only one being is with the Lord. That's the secret to contentment. Abide in Him, John 15. It's the right relationship with God. That's the formula. There's no other technique. There's no other things that we do. It's the right relationship. Because the Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. I believe that was his rallying cry throughout his life. Remembering that my grace is sufficient for you. you God's grace is sufficient for you in all things. All circumstances, difficulties in families, health issues, marital issues, issues with children, with parents, with your jobs. In all things, remember what Paul remembered. My grace is sufficient for you. And the power is perfected in your weakness. That's the right mindset. Therefore, he says, I'm, I am well content. Therefore, I am well content. His ability came through Christ. It was done with the power of Christ. There's no place for pride in the work of God. Potter's wheel receives no glory. It goes all to the potter. You know, one thing, we talked about hardship. In the contentment, it's a byproduct of difficult life or distress. You want, you should pray for distress in your life. Like Paul. You pray for some suffering in your life. Why? Because it creates contentment. Paul's, his life is an example. Pray for, not a lot, but at least a certain amount of distress. 
then in, in God, when He uh, enables us to deal with trials and difficulties, it'll make us more content. I told you when I was in ICU, couldn't breathe. I shared with many of you. There's three things I wanted to do. I wanted to see my kids again and do ministry again and have a watermelon. came down to those three things. Right? I would have like, killed for a watermelon at that time if I could. Right? Like, when you don't have very much, if you can't breathe, there's not much you want. You know? It's very simple. Life gets very simple that way. You know, if you have a lot of discontentment in your life, maybe you go by this, deduct the, take this formula. Maybe our lives are too easy. Maybe our lives are too easy. Therefore, our prayers need to be, God, please add some distress so that I will be content. The more Christ is involved, contentment will be at hand. More opportunity for contentment when Christ strengthens us. You know, I would just conclude, just take a couple minutes, my concluding thoughts. And I would say, you know, stop arguing with the umpire. Stop arguing with God. How many managers go out and argue and get the call reversed? Rarely, right? Almost never. You know, grumbling and complaining about our circumstances, God, it's meaningless, it's fruitless. Instead, we should be thankful because distresses, suffering are good. You know, so I would just leave also, as I said before, those of you minister leadership or any other um, roles that you have in the in the Church of Cornerstone, will you be okay? Will you be content that was taken from you? Any life circumstances were taken from you? Think of something again, the alabaster jar. Something that was most precious to you was taken away from you. Will you be content in God still? And those singles I touched upon, and you know, forgive me if I offended you, but will you be content if God does not change your current state? And those of you who are having difficulty in marriages, if God does not take that away from you, can you prayerfully endure for the Lord? Those of you who are struggling financially, the future is difficult. Can you be content in your distress? Be thankful in your distress and rely upon the Lord because you are blessed. God is blessing you. God is blessing you. In most difficult circumstances, you'll feel and understand the grace of God. Right? You'll feel and you'll know the grace of God. May that be your, your, your prayer and to be thankful and may you find contentment in your distress and may God give us all, all of us the grace to strive for contentment in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the life of Paul since he met you on the road to Damascus, we've, he saw nothing but suffering. But his, he was richer than all of us because he found contentment. He learned to be content in you. 
Lord, we give you praise for this man. May we live to understand the grace that he experienced. Help us to see above our circumstances and to see the truth of your word come alive in our lives. Help us to forego of what we don't have, our circumstances. Help us to be consumed with others more and help us to be consumed relying upon you who strengthens us. Will you give us the grace to endure and persevere all circumstances and have hearts of contentment while we walk on this earth? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.